fundamental part of our identity is whether or not we are in Adam or in Christ. Regarding race, we saw that our culture sees different races and often assigns moral virtues and vices um, to individuals on the basis of their race. But biblically, we saw that we are all one race physically, all descendants of Adam, and then two races spiritually, either in Adam or in Christ. Regarding our sexuality, our culture says that you should indulge whatever feelings and desires you have. Biblically, we saw that some of our desires and feelings are wrong and need to be repented of. Much more uh, could be said about our culture's view on these subjects, and uh, we don't have time to go into all of that today. I did teach uh, a couple years ago um, a small group where I went a lot more in depth on this, and at that time I created a booklet um, that I gave to everybody in the small group. If anybody is interested in that, um, please see me after, give me your email address, and I can email you a copy of that booklet. This week, um, we're gonna look at two specific words that our culture misunderstands. And those two words are justice and love. And so we're gonna look at um, kind of the same format as last week. Here's what the culture says about those words and then here's what the Bible says on those words. Let me give you a, a quick uh, analogy that will hopefully uh, make sense uh, why we're doing it this way today. So when I was a teenager, I had a suit that I needed to dry clean. And being a teenager and not having a lot of money, I wanted to find where in Salem can I get the best deal on dry cleaning? So I opened the yellow pages. Um, I don't see anybody really young in here. Maybe the sound guy. Do you, do you know about yellow pages? Okay, cool. Uh, so most of, us, most of us know about yellow pages. So I went to the yellow pages under dry cleaners and I was calling every number on there and asking them how much does it cost to dry clean a suit. And I got to one entry that confused me. It said blind cleaners. And I thought to myself, well, how can they dry clean my suit if they can't see? Like, will they even be able to get the wrinkles out? And I thought, well, I don't want to discriminate against them. If they've got this business, you know, they probably know how to dry clean a suit even if they're blind. And so I called them and I said, how much does it cost to dry clean a suit? And you guys all know where this is going. They said, we don't clean suits, we clean blinds. Right. So I was pretty embarrassed, I was like, okay. But see, and that's the weird thing about the English language, is we have the same word, blind, that could mean that you can't see, or it could mean the thing that you hang in your window. Same word, two different meanings, depending on the context in which it is used. And this is my point for our lesson this morning. With the words love and justice, these words have a very specific meaning biblically. The Bible goes into detail on what these things mean. Our culture uses the same words, but it uses them in a much, much different way. Um, and so I want to give that contrast this morning so that when we use those words, we're using them in a biblical way. I think one of the ways that a lot of times Christians get, get themselves in trouble is they adopt the culture's definition of these words without realizing that they've done so. And then when they see those words in the Bible, they attach the cultural's definition to them. Right, so the culture has a very specific definition of justice, which we will talk about momentarily. And that view, that definition of justice is very, very unbiblical. But what a lot of times happens is Christians will fully believe what our culture says about justice, and then they'll see a verse in the Bible that tells us to do justice, and they'll think that it's talking about what the culture is talking about. And it's not, it's a totally different thing. And the same thing is true of love. I mentioned, um, we talked about sufficiency of scripture a few weeks back, that uh, one of the ways that uh, our culture misuses scripture 
is it will use the phrase love your neighbor as yourself as whatever they want it to mean. And that's not true. The Bible tells us what love means. And so we need to know what Scripture says on these. So let's start with justice. The world's view of justice. Last week we saw that our culture divides everyone into the category of either being oppressed or being an oppressor based on variables like skin color, gender, or sexuality. Justice, then, is taking power and resources away from oppressors and giving them to the oppressed. As part of this, the word of an oppressor is ironclad proof of guilt. Sorry, the word of an oppressed person is ironclad proof of guilt of an oppressor. This is often referred to as the oppressed person's, quote, lived experience, and it's actually an act of oppression to question their lived experience. Right? So if, um, uh, if a female, for example, accuses a male coworker of sexism, that's true. There's no discussion. The, the guy shouldn't even attempt to defend himself. He should just apologize and move on. Why? Because as a male, he is automatically an oppressor, and as a female, she is automatically oppressed. Therefore, her word is true on that. And the same is true of racism and other topics. The goal of justice for our culture is never to be fair to both sides or um, in court to give somebody a fair trial. No, the goal is to punish the oppressor and give a win to the oppressed as a community. Part of this as well is kind of a group sense of justice, um, right? So uh, this is primarily done uh, in, in the subject of race. So if a, if a white person that you and I have never met on the other side of the country does something really evil, we, all of us, as who are white, should apologize for it. We're all guilty, right? Like, they acted as a representative of all of us, and so we're, we're all guilty. And we'll see biblically how that's not correct. Part of justice is that it should be, from the world's perspective, is that it should be pursued at any cost. If there's insufficient evidence to convict a person in court, then he should at least lose his job or be kicked out of school or have his reputation tarnished. It's now common for rioting, looting, property destruction, and even assaults to be used to demand justice. And this is kind of insane if you think about it, right? I'm mad about this event over here, so I'm going to go assault this person over here that has nothing to do with it. But that's very common, and our, and our culture considers that justice. Before we get into what the Bible says on this, I want to point out a very serious problem when, with this view of justice. Think for a minute about watching some sort of an action movie. Think about um, the end of the story where the evil villain dies. Sorry for the spoiler, but that's pretty much how they all go, right? The villain always dies at the end of the story. Think about that moment where, you know, they always zoom in on the villain's face and you can see in his eyes, he knows his time has come, he's going to suffer and he's going to die. How many of you feel bad for the villain in that moment of the movie? Nobody feels bad for the villain. Why? Because the storytellers have done a really, really good job throughout the movie of developing a disgust and a hatred for this villain. And you, you can't wait for the end of the movie for this guy to finally get what's coming to him. And when it happens, you feel a sense of satisfaction and joy that, hey, finally, this guy, this guy's getting justice. This guy, this needed to happen to this person, and I'm glad that it is. The problem with our cultural view of justice is that it paints people as villains not on the basis of their action, 
but on the base of what categories they fit into. Thus, if you are, um, if you are considered by the culture to be an oppressor, um, based on being uh, white, male, heterosexual, cisgendered, whatever category you're put into, the culture then sees you as a villain, and they have no empathy for anything that happens to you. So if you're falsely accused of something and you lose your job, or you even go to prison and it wasn't true, and none of it was true and you hadn't done anything wrong, you're gonna get no sympathy from the culture. Why, because you're an oppressor, you are the villain, and they relish your suffering. This is dangerous, right? I mean, this is kind of how genocides start, is when you take a group of people and say, you just deserve whatever happens to you. But this is our culture's view of justice. So, what's the Bible's view of justice? Let me start with a verse, Proverbs 28, verse 5 says that evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Quick discussion question um, for the group. Why is it that evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely? Because the justice, as believers, we see it through the eyes of Christ, the character of God. Good. God's justice is within his character and his realm of how he meets it out. And the unbeliever, the unregenerate, can't see it but in their own understanding. Good. Yeah, so if, if, if justice was a college class, there's a lot of prerequisite classes to that, right? The character of God, right? Anthropology, like the understanding of humans, right? The Bible, right? Like you need to understand all these things to understand justice. When you, when you don't have those foundations, when you haven't taken the prerequisite courses, justice isn't going to make sense to you. And then justice can just mean whatever you want it to mean. How foolish it is when Christians get their view of justice from a world that doesn't understand justice because they don't know God and they don't know his word and they don't believe his word. So let's get into some specifics of how the Bible defines justice. Leviticus 19.15 says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Deuteronomy 1.17 says, you shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. Deuteronomy 16, 19, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts, subverts the cause of the righteous. So there's one word that shows up in all three of those passages, and that's partiality. We are not to show partiality towards the poor or the great, towards the small or the great, as these passages say. What does that mean? It means that everyone gets a fair trial. Everyone is judged fairly. We don't prejudge people on the basis of their skin color or their gender or their sexuality or anything like that. This is where, in America, in our justice system, we have the concept that justice should be blind. 
right? How many of you would like to be on trial and have the jury say, well, you know, based on your skin color, we're pretty sure you're guilty. That's, that's not justice, right? Justice should be blind. It should not prejudge people based on those kinds of categories. That's biblical. Biblically, by the way, there is no such thing as racism. The word racist, racist or racism is not in the Bible. That falls under the sin of partiality, giving somebody either advantages or disadvantages or prejudging them based on the color of their skin. That's partiality, and it is a sin. Any questions on partiality before we move on to the next portion of justice? Okay. Um, next one, Exodus 23, 2 and 3. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his, law, in his lawsuit. This tells us not to join the mob in doing evil, right? We need to do the right thing regardless of what the quote-unquote many say. So there have been many times uh, when the overwhelming majority of um, our culture has condemned a, um, a police officer for, um, uh, for doing something wrong uh, based on partial evidence or even false evidence. And then later, as the rest of the evidence comes in, it turns out that the police officer actually hadn't done anything wrong and was just doing his job. But by that time, in many cases, the large majority of the country has already spoken condemnation against that officer, including pastors. Otherwise, biblically faithful pastors feel the need to, to get up in front of their churches and openly condemn somebody who it turned out hadn't done anything wrong. And this is unbiblical, right? We just read, you don't side with the many. Just because everybody else is saying it doesn't mean you say it too, right? As believers, we don't side with the many. We side with Scripture. We side with what the Bible says, not with what the majority say. say. And I just want to point out the, the concept of, of mob justice, which is so popular in our culture right now, right? If, if there's something we want, if there's some sort of a justice issue, let's get a big group of us together, and if we're all screaming at the top of our lungs, we must be right, right? And the more of us that there are that are doing this, the more right we are. If you ever find yourself in a position like that, where you are part of a large mob mentality, think about some of the mobs in history and whether or not they were doing right or whether they were doing wrong, right? Chances are, most of the time, the mob is not doing right. And I've got in your handout there, um, one specific mob I have in mind is the one that demanded the crucifixion of Christ, right? That was a mob of people. And uh, we even see uh, in the account of that um, that Pilate gave in to the mob. That's the only reason he ordered the execution of Jesus is because the mob demanded it and he was afraid of the mob. Uh, Pilate should have read Exodus 23, right? Do not fall in with the many. Do not side with the many. Do what's right regardless of what the mob says. All right, next one, Deuteronomy 17.6. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Scripture repeats in several places that two or three witnesses are required to convict somebody of wrongdoing. A single witness is not enough. You have to have corroborating evidence. 
This is where our legal system gets the concept of burden of proof, or the, the concept that if you are on trial, you are innocent until the state proves you guilty. If you go to trial for a crime, you don't have to prove you're innocent. You don't. The state has to prove you're guilty. That's their burden, not yours. And this is a biblical concept. That's why our culture tries to punish people outside of the justice system, because that burden of proof doesn't apply when you're trying to get somebody fired or, or something like that. But as Christians, we don't judge people on the basis of one witness. It requires two or three witnesses. There needs to be corroborating evidence in order to um, accuse someone. One more under justice. Proverbs 18:17. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. And from this, we get the concept that we need to hear both sides of a matter before rushing to judgment. We also get this uh, concept in our legal system as well. Um, this is, uh, if you are on trial for a crime, you have a right to cross-examine your accuser. They can't just get up on the witness stand and tell their story, and that's the end of it. No, you or your lawyer can ask them questions and cross-examine, and you get to tell your side of the story before you are rendered guilty. Think about how opposite this is from our culture, right? One person gives an interview on TV and says this happened, and everybody rushes to judgment and wants to condemn a person based on the word of one person, and we haven't even heard the side of the person who's being accused. And once again, we see Christians joining in that mob and that rush to judgment before both sides have been heard. It's unbiblical. As believers, we need to hear both sides. So think about this for a second. The next time you see something in the news that gets you all fired up, one way or another, regardless of who's being accused, regardless of what the situation is, when you see something in the news and you're all fired up and you're, you're ready to say something, ask yourself a question. Did you hear both sides of it? Did the article you just read tell both sides of the story? Or did you only get the one side? And if you've only gotten the one side of the story, maybe you should reserve judgment until you've heard the other side. All right, we did not cover everything on justice. That's why you have a handout. Um, the handout goes into more detail. There's more points in the handout than what uh, I included in the lesson. Um, but I want to give uh, just a couple of minutes if anybody has any questions or comments on justice before we move to love. Just, just reinforcing what you're saying. I think it's really important as believers that we don't have to form an opinion on everything that's in the media until we have seen and heard more of the facts. I was, I was really glad that you brought up the, the passage in, in Proverbs 18:17. That was the first thing that came to mind for me. It was like, until the other side is heard. So because it, it, it's so, in our culture right now, it's really, really easy. It's like, oh, it, it gets a headline. And as believers, it is incumbent on us not to just read a headline or one of those, you know, clickbait things. Oh, uh, that the headline says this, this must all be true. Even sometimes reading the rest of the article, you realize, oh, that wasn't even the, the full story. And we need to be Bereans about th those kinds of things. Yeah. Search the scriptures, does this really line up and do I have enough information to even have an opinion on this? Uh, but it's really dangerous, like you say, with the mobs. I mean, the bring us Barabbas, <laughs> you know, from, from Jesus' day. That's how badly and how poorly 
mobs, mob mentality thinks. Yeah, and if, if, if I could uh, uh, piggyback on that, which I think I can since I'm the one teaching, um, <laughs> to, to piggyback on that, if, if you're sitting here hearing all this and you're thinking, and you know, maybe you're, you're pretty politically um, attuned, and you're thinking, you know what, you're right, that's exactly what the other side does and they need to stop it. Well, you know what? There's people on your side that are doing it too. Right? We, we, see, that, um, we see that from both sides on, uh, on social media, on, on, on everything. And yeah, and, and the, the whole thing about hearing both sides, you know, when somebody presses you on it, you can say, you know what? Man, you're right, that, 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 that does sound terrible, um, but I, I just, I don't have enough facts of this case to, to render a judgment on it. We've only heard one side of it. You know, let's, you know, let, let's, let's wait and see what happens. I, I can't really form an opinion until, you know, until we really have the whole story, which we don't. Um, so, uh, good, uh, good point on that. Yeah, and that's the other thing too is, you know, we, we aren't all like individual like PR firms that need to put out official statements on everything that happens. You know, we just, I, I don't know. I, I don't have enough information. All right, so the concept of love, switching gears slightly here. One thing Christians in the culture actually agree on is the nature of love, kind of, just a little bit. Both sides believe that to love someone is to seek that person's greatest good. I think that's a fair estimation of what pretty much everybody believes about the nature of love. Where we differ, and we differ really, really big, is what we consider to be the person's greatest good. And that's where the two paths are going to diverge rather quickly. All right, so let me give you an example. You have a friend who's married, but he's miserable in his marriage. His wife nags him all the time. He can't stand being around her. He spends as much time at work as possible just because he doesn't want to be with his wife. Meanwhile, he's got a lot of attention recently from a female coworker. There's obviously a, some quote-unquote chemistry there. She listens to him and respects him, unlike his wife, which doesn't. Not only that, but she's got a great personality, much better than the personality of his wife. Your friend tells you that he's going to leave his wife and pursue a relationship with this coworker. He thinks this coworker is probably his soulmate. So what's your response? Culture and Christians are both going to seek this man's good in their response. But because we have a totally different worldview than the culture, what we believe is good is going to be 180 degrees opposite from what the culture is going to say is good, and thus, we will love this person in a completely opposite way. So let's talk about the culture's view first, very briefly. The culture sees one's highest good as happiness that comes from pursuing your inner desires and living your truth in an authentic way. In other words, the culture encourages you to indulge your flesh, especially on issues of gender and sexuality. And is the culture worried about God's judgment? No. All the culture is concerned about is what's in this life. As far as they're concerned, your happiness, your temporal happiness, is all that there is, and that's all that we need to be concerned with. So what advice would the world give to this guy who wants out of his marriage? They would say, follow your heart. Don't stay in a marriage that, that is making you unhappy. Why would you want to be miserable? You need to be true to yourself and pursue this coworker who may very well be your soulmate. You may be right about that. You owe yourself this happiness. That's what our culture would say here. Our culture's view of love 
does not really include rebuke or negativity of any kind. Why? Because love is simply encouraging a person to pursue their desires. This is particularly true when it comes to anything related to gender and sexuality. Our culture believes that to love someone is to affirm all of their choices in this area. Anything less than a full affirmation is hateful and may even cause the person to be suicidal. That's our culture's view of love. And that makes sense of why they do what they do, why they say what they say. Let's talk about God's view. I want to preface this, and this is at the top of your um, handout on biblical love as well. Remember that Jesus said that all of the biblical commands could be summed up as loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, as well as loving your neighbor as yourself. Thus, logically, anything scripture tells you to do in interacting with somebody falls under the definition of love. Right? That's what Jesus said. For example, rebuking somebody is loving. Why? Because God tells you to do it. And everything God tells you to do towards another person fits under the definition of love. In addition, remember that Jesus, being fully God, loved perfectly. So anything we see Jesus doing in interacting with other people fits under the definition of love. So how does a Christian love? Uh, Turn with me to Romans 6. We are going to start in verse 20. Romans 6, verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It really is quite simple. There are two paths leading to two different destinations, right? Jesus talked about the broad way and the narrow way. You can either be not a Christian and be enslaved to sin. That's the wide path, and that path leads to death. Uh, That's going to lead to consequences in this life, and it's also going to lead to eternal death. Or you can be on the narrow road and be a slave of God. You You can be set free from your sin, and rather than pursuing your fleshly desires, you're pursuing obedience to Christ, and that road leads to life. And of course, we're not talking here about salvation by works, but rather the effects of salvation. If you are a Christian, if you have been saved, you will be on the narrow road. You will be pursuing obedience to Christ. Or you can be on the broad road that leads to death. Scripture tells us in two different places, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. That's in Proverbs 14.12 and 16.25. When we follow our own heart and our own intuition, we will naturally find ourselves enslaved to sin and on the path to death. Thus, if we love somebody, we will warn that person to stay clear of sin. If you love somebody, you want them on the narrow path. You want them on the path that leads to life. How could you love somebody and 
affirm them on the wide road that leads to destruction. We know that the absolute greatest good for a person is to love God, to be saved by God, and to experience an ever-growing relationship with God. Nothing could ever make a person happier than going to heaven someday, right? As the Christian, this, this life isn't all there is. We're looking forward to eternity. And the way we conduct relationships with other people is in light of that. Thus, our love prioritizes helping people either become a Christian or to grow as a Christian. And as part of that is going to include helping people to stay clear of sin. So then, this is a group discussion question. This, is, this one's not rhetorical. How do you address this friend who wants to leave his wife as a Christian? And um, sub-question if you want to address this one. Would your answer change if your friend identifies as a Christian or if he goes to your church? Biblically, how do you love this guy? And for the ladies, if you want to change the scenario and it's a female friend who wants to leave her husband, you can go that route too. Don't be bashful. You do have a two-sided sheet in front of you that might have some cheaters if they can get you started. How do you love this person that wants to leave their spouse? I'll start with the, the easy part first here. I mean, with, if someone's a professing believer, you have a common ground to now go back and speak truth into their life. And, and obviously, if they're saying that they're a follower of Christ, these passages and a whole lot of other passages give clear direction on the path and decisions that pe people should be making. So there you've got a, a much easier in to bring them back to Scripture and say, this is what God says, regardless of what you feel. Are, are your feelings above God's perfect revelation? Or do you think you're, you're higher than that and your, your subjective feelings are more important? Good. Yeah, and uh, one of the questions that I have asked, I've, I've been in this uh, situation with, um, with friends before um, who profess to be believers, and they will acknowledge that what they want to do is sinful, but they still intend to do it and somehow think that that's going to be the, the right answer for them. And one of the questions that I have asked them is, do you honestly believe that your life will go better if you disobey God? Like, do you honestly believe that God's greatest blessing is found when you disobey? They don't like when I ask that question. So what, what, other, what other thoughts would you have in addressing this person? Anybody else? You guys are quiet this morning. Maybe the rain is lulling everybody to sleep. All right, so let me give you a, a couple of my thoughts on this. The bottom line with this friend is that you know that if he leaves his wife, it's, it's not going to be good for him. He's going to face serious consequences for um, this action. You also know that 
your friend's heart is being blinded by selfish desires, and he can't see how foolish this decision is, right? He's been, he's been telling himself these things over and over and over again, right? All the negative things that he thinks about his wife, he's been whispering in his own ear for weeks, months, maybe years, right? He's, the problem is with the way that he's thinking, and he's convinced himself of some things that are harmful, that are not true. His feelings are wrong, his emotions are wrong, because he's lying to himself, right? So my goal in a conversation with this friend is to help him address those lies, to, to listen to him, to figure out what he's been telling himself that's gotten him to believe this, and then to encourage him to see this biblically. Now for me, this is going to differ if I'm talking to a friend who professes to be a Christian versus a one, one who does not. If it's somebody who's, who's not a Christian, I kind of don't expect them to believe God or do what God says, right? So it's, it's going to be a little bit different of a conversation. Um, but for the Christian, I absolutely expect them to hear God's word and, and be obedient to it. But overall, um, my goal is to help him see God's plan for his marriage and how he will be most blessed if he pursues that rather than pursuing his, um, his selfish desires. Once again, going back to Romans 6, right? Is, is he going to be a slave of sin or is he going to be a, a slave of God? Which, which path is he going to pursue? Um, because as Proverbs says, um, if he pursues the way that seems right to him, it's, it's ways, um, the way to death. So let's conclude. Um, I hope that you'll take both of the handouts home, um, read through them thoroughly. There's a lot of information on there. Oh, sorry, go ahead. thought came to my mind when you talk to someone who is a Christian you can also go into a realm of consequences you know this seems very right to you because uh, maybe the attraction because this person is beautiful this person is delicate they present all the things that you see in a woman that are desirable right and you think about David as a Christian, as a man of God, walking on the rooftop. His first inclination is, this is true beauty. Right. He never weighed the consequences of where this was going to take him, which ended up in the a murder of Uriah. And he never had any indication that it would ever go that far. And so you can use a biblical example to show the person, I don't say that yours is going to go that far. It's not that you're, going to, you're not necessarily right. going to kill somebody. However, there could be dire consequences coming out of your action and much loss. And where you will find yourself is broken and contrite before a holy God if you are a real Christian. Right. Good. Yeah, and, and I mean, David, David paid big time that you know not not just with you know the, the the murder of Uriah I mean you know he he lost the son that was born of that you know all kinds of conflict and strife within his family that you know likely wouldn't have happened if um, if he had been obedient there um, so concluding uh, again um, don't forget uh, I said in the beginning I, I have a, um, a booklet that if anybody's interested I can email you that um, deals a lot with the you know idea of oppression and justice and how our culture considers those topics um, I want to leave you with an exhortation regarding the subject of love. Starting with a, a question. I won't actually ask you guys to answer this one. 
quiet group this morning. Um, but just think about your answer for a second. What is the most unloving thing that has ever been done? The most unloving thing that has ever been done. Could probably come up with a few uh, valid candidates for that, right? I think about Judas betraying Jesus is probably somewhere on that list. But let me suggest that one of the contenders for this title would have to be Satan tempting Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Satan knew full well that if Adam and Eve ate the fruit, it would lead to all the pain and misery that humans have suffered for thousands of years. He knew it would ultimately lead to billions of humans spending eternity suffering in hell under God's wrath. Satan knew the destruction it would cause. And yet, what did Satan say to Eve? Well, he exaggerated the benefits of eating the fruit, right? This is, this is going to be great. This is going to change your life. Well, it's true. It did change your life, right? But, you know, he exaggerated the benefits, and he completely dismissed the consequences. He said, okay, Eve, no, 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 don't, 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 don't worry about it. There's, there's not going to be consequences for this. You, you can have this. It's, it's even better than you think it is. And there are no consequences. In a sense, he gave Eve permission to eat the fruit, letting her know that it was going to be okay, and it was okay to indulge those fleshly desires. I would say that that's one of the most hateful most unloving things that has ever been done. There's a cultural belief that we should affirm people in all of their moral choices, even if scripture says that those choices are sinful. We see this even among so-called pastors. They minimize the consequences of sin and suggest that there's nothing wrong with pursuing fleshly desires. Can you see how unloving that is? It's the same thing that Satan did in the garden. It's leading people away from God and into sin and death. People who affirm others in their sin are doing Satan's work for him. Right? When somebody, if that guy says, hey, I'm thinking about leaving my wife, and you say, you know what? You should, because you deserve a woman who treats you better than that. And you give him permission, and you help him feel, because if he's, if he's wrestling with this, maybe there's a little bit of conviction on his part. And when you go and affirm him in the decision that he wants to make, you're helping him overcome that conviction. You are helping him feel okay about sin. You are encouraging him to be on the path that leads to death and destruction. That's not love. Our culture says that's love. But as Christians, we know better. We know that it is not loving to encourage somebody to be on the road to destruction. If you think about sin, it's oftentimes an ambush set for them by Satan, and we know that Satan's goal is to completely destroy people, right? Jesus said that, that his his goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan wants to absolutely ruin everything good in our lives. Ultimately, his goal is the damnation of as many people as he can. When people commit sin, they are walking into an ambush. As Ralph mentioned with with David, that's exactly what happened with David. David didn't know that was an ambush, but it was an ambush, and David paid dearly for it. To give someone permission to walk into that ambush that sin has set for them is one of the most hateful things that you as a believer can do. A truly loving person would encourage them to repent and to walk away from the sin and to follow Jesus. A truly loving person would plead with them to believe in Jesus for salvation. So that's my concluding exhortation. 
Um, we need to love the way God does. We need to point people to Jesus. I would guess that most of us in this church don't go out and actively encourage people to sin. But I'm also betting that all of us could do more with both evangelism and discipleship. Right? Maybe, maybe your friend that's in sin, maybe you're not going out and like encouraging them to pursue that, but maybe you haven't said anything about it either. Maybe you've just stayed quiet on the subject. And maybe the more loving thing to do is, is to pray for an opportunity to point them to the gospel, or if they're a Christian, um, to help them to grow in that. If we truly love people, we will have a deep desire for their salvation and their sanctification, and we will do whatever we can to encourage them in those things. Any last uh, comments uh, or questions on this before we close in prayer? I'll just throw this out there. Job 28, 28. Okay. All right. Well, then I'm going to close this in prayer, and then uh, we can all look up Job 28, 28. All right. Heavenly Father, um, thank you so much for this morning. Um, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for showing us um, what justice is. Um, thank you for defining that and, and giving us um, examples and principles for that. Thank you also, God, for um, not just giving us um, words that tell us how to love, but for showing us how to love um, in, in the person of Jesus. Um, thank you so much, God, for this opportunity to study your word. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you um, in a few minutes. I pray that our hearts would be focused on you, that you would uh, block out the distractions, help us to truly worship you from our hearts and to, to learn um, as well from the sermon. Help us to honor you with everything that we do today. In Jesus' name, amen.